0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Think for a minute about the horror in 2012 as a gunman killed 21st graders in an elementary school in Connecticut. There are actually people who have said that didn't happen, that it was fabricated. Why do they believe something so hurtful and so obviously false? Today, we're going to talk with author Elizabeth Williamson, whose new book dives into the conspiracy theories that surround Sandy Hook and why they've been so hard to dispel. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Disinformation is everywhere these days. Open your computer and log into Facebook, and you could immediately be lost in a world of unverified facts orbiting the news of our politics and culture. And, of course, that's true across social media platforms like Twitter, like YouTube, TikTok. They all are saturated with things that just aren't true. And of course, because they're so popular, because so many of us use them and give them our personal information, these platforms have a lot of power. A lot of power. Now, that power. Is supposed to come with some responsibility but those platforms allow information to spread faster than it has ever traveled in the history of the world and they get to choose what's allowed to be said how quickly it moves and ultimately what impact it has in 2012 a gunman walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut and killed 20 first graders and six educators. That's true. The violence was brutal and traumatic. But what came next was really remarkable and was something that probably couldn't have happened 10 20 years before this. Led by a disinformation campaign that spread on social media, the parents of the slain children were berated by people who believed that this shooting had been fabricated. Those beraters were led by a man named Alex Jones, who's a fairly famous conspiracy theorist and is now being sued for defamation by some of those Sandy Hook parents. But even if Jones is ultimately brought to justice, the problem here won't go away. The problem of disinformation and conspiracy theories quickly becoming mainstream on social media platforms, it's something that's here and something that we will be dealing with for a really long time. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, with this idea of how quickly and how damagingly false information spreads about all kinds of things that happen in our news, in our culture, in our politics. And to talk about it, we've got a really great guest. Elizabeth Williamson is the author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy, and the battle for truth. Elizabeth, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Stephen, thank you for having me here.
1: So I wanna start by going back to reminding listeners what happened at Sandy Hook. How did so many children end up being killed in their own classrooms at an elementary
2: school? So on December 14th, 2012, um, a gunman who lived very nearby, Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, um, entered the school um, with carrying multiple weapons, including uh, an AR-15, and um, and brutally killed, um, as you just said, 20 first graders and six educators.
1: And how did you get started trading the life of Leonard Posner, who's the mm-hmm. father of one of the children who was slain at Sandy Hook. And then how did you come to track that to these conspiracy theories that have followed this shooting, just haunting it? And I mean, I feel like it's uh, almost like an image of the Grim Reaper that is following these parents around, uh, making it impossible for them to have any closure about this, or certainly uh, to move on in their lives?
2: Yeah, it's a significant additional trauma in addition to the the terrible trauma that they suffered in 2012. Um, So I first got to know Lenny Posner, who is the father of Noah Posner, um, who was the youngest Sandy Hook victim, in the middle of 2018, after he and Veronique de la Rosa, who is Noah's mother, filed a defamation suit against Alex Jones, the Infowars broadcaster and conspiracy theorist. This was not until 2018, so six years nearly after the shooting, um, he was joined in that suit by Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis, who are the parents of Jesse Lewis, another first grader who was killed. Um, And they were swiftly joined by the families of eight other victims who sued Jones for defamation in Connecticut. So altogether, there were four defamation suits. Um, so Lenny Posner was really at the forefront of pushing back against these conspiracy theorists who claimed that Sandy Hook hadn't happened, that it was um, what was called a false flag operation, which is um, a staged event set up by the federal government as a pretext in his belief to confiscate Americans firearms. This of course was false um and spreading this to, tens of millions of people on his InfoWars network, which is 100 radio stations plus an online show. And at that time, a significant social media presence as well resulted in years of torment of these families. People followed them. They called them liars. They accused them of staging this event and profiting from it. Um, They People came to Newtown, they followed the family members, they dug through their trash, they appeared at their homes, they confronted them on the street, not only in Newtown, sometimes thousands of miles away because they recognized them from Alex Jones's show um, where he called out individual parents by names, saying or by by their names, saying that they were actors in this plot. Um, so by six years of of this, um the families had had enough, and they sued Jones. Um, but what I did learn, you know, I initially thought that this was an interesting test of the First Amendment's um, ability to protect, as these conspiracy theorists Alex Jones and others, frequently claim that they have First Amendment protection. The right of free speech protects them when they spread this material online, these falsehoods that are so damaging to the family members. But what I quickly found out was that Sandy Hook is a foundational story about how false narratives and misinformation have gained traction in our society. Hmm. So from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate to QAnon to Charlottesville to coronavirus myths and the 2020 election lie that brought violence to the Capitol. We're seeing increasing numbers of individuals for ideology or tribalism or like Alex Jones for profit who are willing to deny accepted truth and established science.
1: And one of the things that you're doing, I think that's really important in this book is taking a look at how someone like Alex Jones builds the kind of audience that he does. As I was saying in the open, there there is a technological base to all of this that makes it possible in a way that it hasn't been before. And I, I absolutely believe that that's one of the things that 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 powers this kind of conspiracy mongering that it's just a lot easier to do right now. But there are some other factors too. There are some other things about this that maybe aren't so new that are just about the susceptibility, I guess, of people um, to the idea that things that happen that we can see, that we can verify, somehow aren't real and somehow are lies. Can you talk more about that context behind this this technology um, that is making it uh, easier to spread these things?
2: Sure. So... We all know a conspiracy theorist. You know, it could be that relative who corners you at the family reunion and tells you their theories about the JFK assassination or the person who questions the official narrative of 9-11. But the Internet and particularly social media has allowed these individuals Uh, To find each other. You know, they were once pretty isolated, and you know, traditional media tended not to give them a lot of attention or to or to put a counterpoint next to what they were saying. But what social media has done is given them an open forum and a potential audience of millions, and they can spread their false claims within seconds across the country or around the world. And most importantly, it allows conspiracy theorists to find each other and to congregate. They gain a lot of psychic income from sharing these theories. They believe them, they, they get an ego boost because they believe themselves to be in possession of some kind of superior knowledge. They share a deep distrust of official narratives and of government. And so they gather online and they create a kind of fortress around themselves that becomes really impermeable to truth. Hmm. And when you say
1: impermeable to truth, boy, that's really a frustrating phrase, right? It suggests that there isn't a way to to, to, to get these folks to 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 think about these things in a different way or to accept information um, that's true. Do you do you feel like it is that hopeless?
2: I don't think it's hopeless for one reason, because now we are starting to see, especially with January 6th, we start to see the impact of some of these false narratives and, and, you know, these lies around really bedrock democratic institutions like our elections. And I think that that has alarmed people. You could argue not sufficiently, um, particularly when, you know, you still have a significant segment of the far right defending the people who attacked the Capitol, and you have the former president of the United States insisting that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. But at the same time, there's a lot more alarm and some points of bipartisan agreement where people realize that these beasts that have been created by the social media titans need to be reined in in some way so that the powers that they have are used for good. Um, And there are initiatives out there, um, but these are such gigantic platforms now, they've grown exponentially even since Sandy Hook, um, that it's a very difficult task to try and find effective ways to more closely govern what spreads on social media.
1: I'm talking with uh, Elizabeth Williamson. Uh, she is a feature writer for the not the New York Times, uh, a former member of the New York Times editorial board and author of Sandy Hook: An American Tragedy and The Battle for Truth. We're talking about what happened 10 years ago in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, uh, when a gunman walked into an elementary school and killed 20 children, 21st uh, graders and six educators. Um, we're talking about the massive number and depth of conspiracy theories that uh, were inspired by that tragedy um, and why they, why they bubbled up, why they were so appealing uh, and the damage that they did to those families uh, who lost their children. In that tragedy, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Call and tell us what you make of disinformation and conspiracy theories, and how easily they spread today. Do you think this is a big problem in modern American life? Is it tied to the ubiquitousness and uh, and strength of social media? Um, also, give us a sense of what you think is the best way to combat the idea of spreading such lies, having them take on new lives in ways that uh, are threats to people's sanity and privacy. Also, on January 6th of 2021, they were a threat to the republic itself in Washington. Um, What do you think we should be doing to prevent misinformation from spreading and gaining the power that it has. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Also, give us a call and let us know if you're someone who has been the victim of misinformation or a misinformation campaign have you had a hard time getting the truth out about something uh, that happened on social media for instance a harder time than you might have before these platforms like facebook and twitter and TikTok were so prevalent uh, i'd also love to hear from parents about the way in which these platforms and the misinformation on them Uh, influences your children. Uh, How concerned are you about uh, your kids believing things that aren't true or being able to sift through the tremendous amount of information to find out what is true and what is not? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to social media and put comments there. There's a little irony there, of course, uh, and we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way, um, Elizabeth. Before we go to our listeners, uh, I want to go back to uh, Alex Jones in particular, and what it was about Sandy Hook that attracted him to talking about it and talking about it in in a false light. Was this something that was there something about this tragedy? that he knew um, would catch on and would uh, would would make him as influential as he was? And, and I guess, what was it? Why this shooting and not something else?
2: Sure, so Sandy Hook was such a horrific event um, that people on both sides of the gun legislation debate in this country viewed it as a watershed uh, tragedy. They knew that in the aftermath of Sandy Hook and the killing of so many young children, um, so horrifically, so young, would spark a very heated debate in this country over new gun legislation. Alex Jones has been traditionally a pro-Second Amendment, anti-gun legislation individual. He sees himself as a kind of white Christian nationalist. Um, So when he was, you know, I listened to his broadcast on the day of the shooting, he broadcasts every week day for four hours in the afternoon, and he could see the reports sort of trickling in and the death toll rising. And it became, you know, initially he seemed a little reluctant, but callers into his show were sort of pushing him. Alex, tell us that this was a conspiracy theory. Tell us what was happening. Tell us was the government involved, that type of thing. And so by the time the death toll really became known over the course of his show, He was sort of bought in. He was calling this, you know, something spurred by the government. This doesn't sound right, et cetera, et cetera. This is a very convenient thing because, again, you had a lot of people in the debate who were saying, you know, this is going to be the the event that prompts some proposal or some new gun legislation. And he could see that as well. So it became a kind of tool in his toolkit and, you know, it's a measure of how, unscrupulous he is that, you know, he would see it that way, that, you know, this was this was something you could say that would start to create that that sort of shroud and fog of doubt around this event and maybe muddy the gun debate that followed.
1: Hmm. And when when he does this, what is the what is this the the goal here, I guess, is the goal to Create a a culture of doubt about this particular incident, or is the goal to advance a political agenda? I mean, I think this question of the connection between this kind of conspiracy theory and the various ideologies that exist uh, in our in our country, and the fight between those ideologies, is kind of an interesting question. Is Alex Jones trying to 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 advance that political ideology that he holds, or is he just about Alex Jones being someone with tremendous influence?
2: So it's both really. So what I think, and I think that's a really critical question that touches on some very interesting core elements that, apply to the conspiracy theories that are threatening our democracy today. So the idea is if you oppose something or you want Americans to believe something is true, you don't necessarily have to convince them. You can do what Steve Bannon says was an actual goal during Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, and that is flood the zone with I won't use the word he used, but govno, just put so much garbage out there Mm. that people begin to throw up their hands and say, I don't know what's true. Maybe they've got a point. Who knows? So you don't even have to necessarily believe an outlandish theory. You just have to be confused. And then they've won. So that's sort of the political goal. But Alex Jones is much more about, as especially as time went on, the Sandy Hook hoax theory for him was a huge moneymaker. In the three years after 2012, when he began to to spread this theory, this idea, that false idea, that it was a hoax, that it was staged by the government his listenership doubled. And he has a genius business model in which he sells products like diet supplements, doomsday prepper gear, dried foods, unregistered, you know, uh, untraceable gun components to people who have a deep distrust of the government, who have a deep distrust of all official narratives, and who are preparing kind of for the end of times for confrontation. And he sold well his in in most recent years he had revenues of more than 50 million dollars a year so this is not a mom and pop broadcaster this mm-hmm. is someone with a very you know well thought out business model yeah
1: okay coming up we're going to continue this conversation with elizabeth williamson about conspiracy theories and sandy hook and the damage that they have been doing to the families who lost children in that tragedy. Uh, We want to get going on the phones and on social media as well. 313-577-1019. Call and tell us. What role you feel conspiracy theories are playing in political dialogue, cultural arguments, all of the things that we talk about in places on social media. Is disinformation getting in the way of being able to have honest conversations about our differences? Uh, Also, parents, call and tell us how you handle this with your kids in social media. How do you steer them clear? of disinformation. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Elizabeth Williamson, a feature writer for the New York Times in the Papers Washington Bureau, also a former member of the New York Times editorial board. Uh, She worked at the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and spent a decade as a foreign correspondent in Eastern Europe. She's got a book called Sandy Hook. An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. It takes a look at the tremendous conspiracy theories that emerged from the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting led by conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Uh, We're talking about the damage that those theories have done to the families. Uh, who lost children in that tragedy also the damage that disinformation generally is doing to our dialogue to our politics to our culture Uh, all of the things that we see that are much more difficult because of these intense campaigns of disinformation we want to hear from you during the conversation about what role disinformation is playing in your life making it harder to discern the truth, making it harder to help your children, perhaps, find the truth. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Elizabeth, I want to go back to Leonard Puzner, who was one of the, the, the parents of a child killed at Sandy Hook and talk about their lives after the shooting, the lives of other parents like them. What has that been like going through this kind of trauma while these really vicious things were said about them and while people tried to do vicious things to them? Yeah.
2: um, So their saga with Alex Jones and conspiracy theorists, more or less began when Veronique de la Rosa, who is, um, she was Lenny's uh, wife at the time and the mom of Noah Posner, um, again, as we said earlier, the youngest Sandy Hook victim. So Veronique went on um, CNN with Anderson Cooper and she was reminiscing about Noah's life. Um, this was shortly after his funeral. She was standing in Newtown in front of the Edmond Town Hall in downtown Newtown and speaking with him. Um, Alex Jones's crew lifted a video of that interview off the internet. And in so doing, they created a glitch in the copy that they made. They used that glitch to say, and Jones said this repeatedly over years on his show, that that glitch in the tape, which again, Infowars and Alex Jones team there created, um, that this was a sign, a kind of anomaly that showed that she didn't actually record her interview about her dead son in Newtown, but she did it in a studio in front of a green screen. In other words, she was acting and she faked her tale of her own son's death. Um, This created all kinds of online torment for the family, um, they, she noticed people following her when she was on her way on her rounds around errands around Newtown. Um, horrific accusations and um, and demands for proof that Noah had actually died. People saying, you know, exhume his body and prove to the world you lost your son. But they kind of messed with the wrong family because Lenny Posner has uh, tech background. He really understood the way this information spreads on social media, and he has made it his life's work ever since to bring these conspiracy theorists to heal and also to shame and push the social media platforms, enabling them to make some changes and take this material down. Mm-hmm.
1: Again, 313 1019 is the number. Let's go to Jeff in Romulus. Jeff, what's on your mind?
0: Hey, Stephen. Yeah, I have an issue with this disinformation discourse because I feel like it's sort of antithetical to a a dialectic of sorts. You know, you can take a straw man like Jones and Sandy Hook and say, you know, oh, Jones was wrong on Sandy Hook. Therefore, every conspiracy theorist, which I don't like that term, is wrong about everything. Um, I think what we and, and so what it allows me to do is, let's say, Stephen, you said, I think COVID might have come from a biological lab. Then I would be able to say, oh, he's a far right, crazy conspiracy theorist who watches Alex Jones and therefore he's wrong. And then we wouldn't have that debate, which needs to be had about the merits of you know it being an animal based pathogen hmm. or not. If somebody said, you know, there's no WMDs in Iraq. Uh, the military-industrial complex, if that were happening today, would shut them down as misinformation. And so I'm not comfortable with the giant corporations, the majority shareholders in BlackRock and Vanguard, controlling what's a conspiracy and what's not, because mm. a lot of things that are conspiracies actually tend to be true.
1: Yeah. So, so Jeff, um, I, I think that's a really provocative point. Um, but, but before I go back to our guest to, to address some of the points that you made, uh, tell me how you decide whether something is true or false. You come across uh, a statement or, or a declaration on Twitter or on Facebook. What's your, what's your test for is this true or is this not?
0: Social media, but my thing would be like, for example, I was told that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a blown actor. So I'd go find the five most provocative out there books that suggest the opposite, that are well sourced from credible people and read them and look at the information for myself and see, is the government hiding something or are they not? So Sandy Hook, I haven't, you know, if I heard Jones say that, I'd have to go look into it. And if there's no evidence for his case, then, you know, there are a lot of crackpots out there. But I think when we start to silence, it's always selective. It's always something that might go against the regime and the flip side of that is, you know, they say, if you read the papers too much, uh, you, 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 they, they won't tell you, you know, they won't only tell you how to think they'll tell you what to think about. So on guns, right. On gun issues, you know, they tell you, take the guns away. They never mention that all these school shooters were on, uh, psychotropic medications. Like, uh, you know, they never mention that because pharma spends the money on ads, the gun manufacturers don't. So, yeah, any time misinformation, it just seems like the ruling regime would choose what's right and what's wrong to their own convenience, and mm-hmm. that's concerning.
1: Jeff, I, I I don't agree 100% with what you're talking about here, but again, I think it's a really provocative point. I think you're making some very important points in this discussion. I really want to thank you for calling in. Uh, Elizabeth Williamson, answer those those criticisms. Is this just a tool by the powerful to kind of quash dissent or inquiry uh, as a way of preserving that power for themselves?
2: So let's start with the baseline truth that, yes, in history, the government has lied to Americans. They have engaged in cover-ups from time to time. I think where the departure comes for a lot of people who are conspiratorially minded is that they assume the government always lies and that the official narrative of a major event is always not as it seems. Um, that's a big difference, and especially if you seek out. And it was interesting what Jeff said about um, if I hear about a major event like the JFK assassination, I'm going to go to the the books that are seen as really out there, mm-hmm. and you know, see if if Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, and and if these people are saying that he didn't, what's their case? There is no problem with reading that material and using it as part of your overall assessment of the truth. The problem is when people seek out only the material or only the broadcast or only the social media group that reinforces their suspicion about every official narrative. there's nobody, you know, wanting to control your mind from a corporation when it comes to a mass shooting. I mean, there have been investigations um, that produced tens of thousands of pages of evidence that this actually happened. Um, and yet you have people who will find one page or one sentence yeah. or a, a a typo or a misprint that. They then use as basis for their claim that the entire event didn't happen, and I'm sorry, but that is just not responsible uh, consume, consumption of information mm-hmm. or analysis. It just isn't.
1: So, but let's let's drill down a little further on Jeff's point. Um, what what's the counsel, I guess, in terms of determining? truth and determining what's conspiracy and 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 nonsense. I mean we, we always talk in media mm-hmm. uh, about you know trusted sources uh, sources that that you know um, are transparent about where they get information and how mm-hmm. they how they report it but but if you're Jeff um, and your inclination is to is to disbelieve I think I mm-hmm. think that's a fair characterization.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: H- how do you get past that? How do? You, and as you point out, look, the government has lied in the in the past. Lots of people lie, and yeah. um, y- you want to be on guard. I think to not be the sucker who believes
2: the lie. Right. Um, so again, I think you have to look at the full body of information available about a major event. And what we have going for us is that if it is a major event there is a lot of reporting on it. There are investigations. There is material that's released to the public. There are laws that allow you to request and get more material from the government, our Freedom of Information Act um, laws. Heading over to a Facebook group of your friends and kind of deciding together what the narrative is, is just not the way to arrive at the truth. Mm. You know, certainly people discuss major events online, but we have a sort of responsibility to ourselves and to the public discourse to gain as full a picture as we can from reliable sources. So, the government would be, you know, on balance, a reliable source, but so are police, eyewitness accounts, um, the stories of survivors who were there, um, first responders who were first into the building, that type of thing. Um, Often what happens after these is some of those accounts get ignored in a kind of generalized sense that this wasn't the right narrative that, you know, oh, are they lying? I think you you can start from there. But what you really have to do is to keep an open mind and not say, I'm looking for evidence of the lie, but rather I'm looking for evidence about what really happened. Yeah. And I think that's where You know, sometimes if people have a sort of conspiratorial mindset, I think that's sometimes where they fall short. And with, you know, Sandy Hook, as with the 2020 election, there is an overwhelming body of evidence that these theories are false. But, you know, it's hard to give them up because people do get a certain kind of psychic income from sort of saying, I'm the one with superior knowledge. I'm the one who knows that government lies. But the thing is, if there are no agreed upon arbiters of truth, as one of the Sandy Hook family's lawyers put it to me, if we destroy all, if we distrust all arbiters of truth, then anyone can be an arbiter of truth. And then we're really in trouble. And I think that's what's beginning to happen. People are choosing their own arbiters of truth, and those sources are not always reliable. Mm.
1: Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about conspiracy theories and truth and the Sandy Hook shooting 10 years ago in Connecticut. We're also going to continue to hear from you on social media and on the phones. Roman in White Lake, Danielle in Rochester, you'll be up next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Elizabeth Williamson, a feature writer for the New York Times and author of a book called Sandy Hook An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. We're talking about the conspiracy theories, the many conspiracy theories that emerged after a gunman walked into an elementary school in Connecticut and killed 21st graders um, in 2012. Uh, We're talking about the effect that had on that story, on the narrative around Sandy Hook, but also how it fits into this larger context of disinformation, of conspiracy that really damages uh, a lot of the dialogue around politics and culture and the other things that we talk about. Um, We want to hear from you about how you make sense of all of the disinformation that's out there on social media or on cable news, or wherever you get information, how do you sort through it? How do you figure out what's true and what's not? Um, And what do you think of this proliferation, I guess, of uh, disinformation that's out there, the effect that it's having on on all of us? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there. Let's go to Danielle in Rochester. Danielle, welcome to the show.
4: Hi there. Hi. Um, Yeah, so I have an experience with uh, disinformation. I have a member of my family, actually my mother, who has uh, unfortunately fallen prey to some of the more extreme misinformation that's out there on the Internet and on social media. Um, And it has progressed over the last, oh gosh, since maybe about 2016, so the last few years here. And it's just gotten progressively worse to the point where it's caused a lot of issues within our family.
1: Uh, Danielle, um, give us a sense of how you have, I guess, responded to that. There are so many people right now, I think, who are at a point of departure, I guess, from, from family members because of things that they believe or say. And it feels certainly like it's more intense now than it has been in the past. Can you give us a, a sense of how you have, have tried to manage this?
4: That That's absolutely true. I'm actually part of an online uh, support group for people who are, um, you know, in the same situation as me, who have family members who have, you know, fallen prey to this sort of thing. And there's, it seems like over the past few years, there's not much that you can do.
2: Uh-huh.
4: Um, you know, I've tried, we've tried to have discussion, obviously that um, can get very terse. Mm-hmm. Um, We've written letters to each other. I even tried to, you know, listen to some of the things that she listens to. I went with her to go see uh, Jordan Peterson speak to try to understand her perspective a little bit. Um, and it, it just it, it hasn't turned out. And it's unfortunately, it, it just seems like she's gone further and further and further down the rabbit hole as time has progressed. Yeah. And I think that you can't really logic someone out of a position they haven't used logic to get to themselves, Right. Because most of these appeals, um, you know, on social media, this disinformation is emotion-driven. You know, it, it, it goes based on feelings and um, paranoia or suspicion or fear that people have. So if, if that's where their belief system, you know, derives from, then it's very, very hard um, to, to disroot that. It's almost, you know, unfortunately, it's almost, I would say, like a cult, mm. um, where, you know, the more you kind of, try to provide examples. Otherwise, the more they kind of dig their heels in. And I have read research that supports that. So I think at this point, it's, you know, um, there's a term gray rocking where you just try to ignore it a little bit and maintain, you know, what relationship you have. Um, Some people, you know, and I do, I would absolutely sympathize with this. Some people, unfortunately, cannot Um, cannot bear bear the burden of having a relationship with somebody who has changed so much fundamentally in their moral system and their belief
1: system. Yeah. Danielle really appreciate the call and, and the insight there. Uh, Elizabeth, what's, what's your reaction?
2: Yeah. So for my book, I interviewed a lot of um, family members like Danielle. um, And this is really a torment uh, for families because it is exceedingly, as Danielle is saying and the people in her group are saying, this is an exceedingly difficult thing to do. That once someone has attached themselves to a conspiracy theory or theories, it's really hard to talk them out of it because they tend to derive, as we said before, a kind of psychic income from this. They have companionship in the group of people who share these views um, they get a little bit of a boost of, you know, self-esteem. Um, they feel kind of um, that part of a community. Um, I would say, you know, one of the things that um, that we're seeing, and, you know, Thomas Pynchon wrote about this in Gravity's Rainbow, that there's something comforting, uh, and he said, almost religious, if you want, in paranoia, meaning that. The opposite of paranoia or anti-paranoia means this, you know, you're not connected to anything. Nothing is connected to anything. Everything is random. And, you know, that's a condition that many of us cannot bear for long. Um, so the idea that that random things happen, I think a lot of people who adhere to these conspiracy theories, they're sort of struggling with the reality of a random, awful event, Hmm. or of more generally, you know, um, random ways in which their own lives are changing and they're struggling. It's important to note that some of the early people who wanted to believe that Sandy Hook didn't happen were young moms with children about the same age as the children who were killed. They were kind of just there for anyone. Lenny described it, Lenny Posner, Noah's dad, um, described it as a form of PTSD, you know, that they, they just couldn't face the idea that this many young children had died in such a brutal way. Um, but they were quickly dissuaded by facts, and then they're left, you know, with this sort of hardcore knot of conspiracy theorists. Um, but I think, you know, the the techniques that Danielle was describing are are somewhat helpful, um, but it is really difficult once someone grabs onto one of these theories to to sort of persuade them otherwise. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Danielle, really great call, and really appreciate you uh, you sharing that that experience with us. It it, it sounds wrenching, and I hope uh, for you that it gets better. Let's go next to Roman in White Lake. Roman, welcome to the show.
3: Yeah, hi, thank you, Stephen. Thanks uh-huh. for having me on. Um, so I thought I you raised a very important question earlier you asked the previous caller and then you said how, you know, really how does one discern what is true? You know, when, when somebody comes across a claim in media, how, how do you really think about that? How do you assess, is this something really that that is, you know, part of reality, so to speak? And it really got me thinking. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm approaching this whole scenario trying to approach it like a rational, like a rational person. And I'm, I, I just, for me, uh, like Elizabeth mentioned, arbit- arbiters of truth, for example. So I just can't get past the idea that, uh, you know, that a, a conspiracy theorist or somebody totally vested in believing that this is, you know, a, a complete fabrication, you know, would could overlook the fact that, you know, that, that there's no reporter out there that would, that, you know, that would actually dig into this story. And if it really were a false flag, if it really was a completely fabricated event, you know, I mean, for me, there's, you know, it would just, there would have to be reporters out there who would have a tremendous incentive to want to expose this and would pursue this and would then expose it. It just makes no sense to think that, you know, the entire media, every single reporter out there is, you know, part of this conspiracy and you know, willing to cover it up—it just does not make sense yeah. at, at a very basic level. So, you know, that—that that was just um, yeah, Roman. Yeah, that, was, that was my thought uh, on that.
1: It's a great point, and as somebody who spent decades in uh, American newsrooms, I can say, you know, we used to sit around and talk about how how absurd it seemed to to think that this, you know, chaotic and often. Um, uh, very uh, frenetic process could be subject to a conspiracy because it is so disruptive uh, in its in its essence. Uh, you know, just doing the job, but but Elizabeth, his call does get at this idea of the deep skepticism that people have about not just the media. Uh, but but other kinds of authority at this point and that um, that it is easier, I think, right now to believe that uh, everyone in the media is going along with with uh, the narrative that they've been told or to, or that people in government are are all motivated to to hide the truth from Americans.
2: Yeah, and I th- here I think you have to look at, you know, this is where we all have to be individually responsible in the way we consume information about major events, whether it's the 2020 election, the 2016 election, coronavirus, or mass shootings. The good news is there is a lot of coverage of those issues from many varied sources. And so it is really up to each of us to look at the preponderance of evidence one way or the other. What tends to happen with conspiracy theories is you have individuals who have a conspiratorial mindset. So they tend to hop from one theory to another. So they do, you know, people who believe that Sandy Hook was a hoax tended to believe that, you know, Democrats were trafficking children in the basement of a pizzeria, not far from where I'm sitting here in Washington, DC or they tended to believe, you know, some of the myths around coronavirus. So if you start with a conspiratorial mindset, what you tend to do is you look for, it's a confirmation bias, you look for information that confirms your suspicions rather than the broad body of information that's available. And that is the the start, you know, the sort of first step down the rabbit hole, because you can dig forever for anomalies or small things and kind of ignore the forest for
1: the trees when Mm. you do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Quickly, I want to get to uh, Jeff in Pontiac. Jeff, uh, I've got about a minute left. Go ahead.
3: Thank you for taking my call, Stephen. I am concerned about people who subscribe to a large number of conspiracy theories. At what point do we conclude that they are simply out of touch with reality? And can we conclude at some point? that they have a mental illness.
1: Mm. Well, Jeff, that's a, it's a reasonable question. I'm not sure I would uh, render such a harsh assessment or judgment. But uh, Elizabeth, wh- how does that figure into this?
2: So I say in my book that if we put this down to mental illness, that makes us sort of lazy thinkers ourselves. Mm. Um, And I'm not, you know, that's not a knock on the collar, of course. It's, It's that, you know, that is a temptation to say that this is a form of mental illness rather than a form of mass delusion, which is supported and enabled by an information infrastructure, which is badly flawed. You know, that that the enraging content, and often that is conspiratorial in nature, gets elevated by these social media company algorithms, so that if you believe in one conspiracy theory, suddenly your timeline or your news feed is flooded with similar material. So you start to just kind of go to one place in the information universe and sort of dwell there. Um, So You know, people, I think there are a lot of causes for this, and sometimes it's just legitimate confusion. The more trash we see out there on social media, the more we have politicians and people in leadership positions casting doubt on traditional sources of truth, the worse the problem gets.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, Elizabeth Williamson, author of Sandy Hook. An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with a scholar about why he believes Democrats should focus on local politics, often in rural areas, to succeed in future elections. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll continue the talking tomorrow.